Yeah, I mean, it's like the, the Jaegers in... Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. Why can't I not remember the name of that movie? Command Center in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 46 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about battling radioactive monsters, giant robots, and 50-foot women. But first, the party returns to the scene of their crime in the Morning Glory campaign, and the giant killer proves that size matters not in the Character Creation Forge. So before we jump into all of that, we have a DMG review. This is Visions of the Vault, Volume 1, by Arcana Games, which is currently on the Dungeon Masters Guild for Pay What You Want. The Visions of the Vault is a series that they're putting together. They're going to release monthly, it looks like, based on the uh, description. And this is the first entry in that series. It's five magic items of varying rarity from uncommon to artifact, actually. So this is the first time that we've reviewed magic items. And the rubric actually is going to be the same as we used for a class previously. So that's five metrics, each rated from one to five. Presentation, lore, mechanics, flavor, and playability. Presentation is what does the document actually look like? Is it readable? Is it laid out? Are there typos? How is the art? Yeah, and I think this is a five. Um, it's it's very well put together. There's beautiful art on the cover. Mm-hmm. It's you know It's got some, some cool kind of inspirational art in... The couple pages of the PDF itself. The writing is clear and concise. There's some typos, but they don't really affect the meaning. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what you expect for Dungeon Master's Guild. Yeah, I think this looks better than a lot of official published material. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the <laughs> art doesn't get in the way, which is nice. Right. And there's a lot of art considering it's only four pages long. Right, and also pay what you want. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How about lore? So lore is our metric for the story of the content that's in there. So given a magic item, sort of why does it exist? Yeah, how does the written description of it help uh, build a world or flesh out a world? This is really good. It's well written. The prose isn't purple at all. The names of both items and item abilities are really flavorful. And I know from writing my own epic destiny features that those evocative names are really difficult to come up with yeah yeah i really like dead man's hands which are gloves that help you as uh, doing some rogue like stuff right so you could basically re-roll sleight of hand checks but i just love the idea of like they're made from an actual dead man's hands (laughs) who got caught (laughs) or um, don't make the same mistake yeah (laughs) and then the artifact that they have called grithund the world maker is all about stone giants forging the world and and kind of shaping it to their desires and it's just so perfect the way all of this is described mm-hmm. one ability called world breaker and one ability called world maker this yeah. is such a great dichotomy yeah. one of those lets you stone shape and move earth world maker uh one of them lets you cast shatter <laughs> world breaker <laughs> and there's not too much of uh the flavor text now, these are just magic items, you know, so there's a simple paragraph, it describes what it looks like, it tells you a little bit about the history, and then it jumps straight into mechanics. Yep. So I think this is a five, right? For lore? Yeah. yeah. I totally agree. 
then we have mechanics, and mechanics are the actual uh, mechanical text of the items. How do they fit into your game? Yeah, the game design text. Exactly. So I, we gave this four stars. Mm-hmm. Um, I think overall it's solid in, in what the mechanics present. There is one wonky mechanic. They use uh, inspiration, which you know is completely controlled by your DM, rewarding you for role-playing your character. So I'm worried that that's a little hit or miss for a lot of tables. Right. As a player, I probably wouldn't want an item that requires me to expend inspiration because I don't know if I'm going to have it. Exactly. As a GM, though, I I was thinking about this. I think it can be potentially an interesting mechanic because you might then have players who are actively seeking out inspiration. Hopefully that makes them better role players or more engaged role players, but it's also possible that they just try to do crazy stuff in combat right that can also potentially get you an inspiration exactly yeah so everyone starts stunting all over the place right (laughs) i will say the uh, stone giant artifact the one artifact in the pdf it feels a little lackluster in terms of power it's very flavorful it's very cool but it doesn't have any of the sort of minor or major abilities that the dmg says you can add into artifacts so it just feels not quite up to artifact level yeah it seems like they should just have add two to four random properties or random minor properties to this and that would kind of round it out yeah i agree all right then we have flavor and flavor is how the lore and the mechanics intersect so are the mechanics presented properly representing the lore that's standing behind them i think this is a solid five stars i mean if you look at the artifact hammer right grithland the world maker the abilities the mechanical abilities you know shatter earthquake move earth stone shape all of these things perfectly match the lore description of the item and it does so in a way that works really well in game yeah and even things like the geminate blades which are two daggers that as an action you can cause them to point towards each other which is just easy for locating things and then also you can look through them (laughs) so you can the one of the blades shows you the reflection that's coming off the other. I love how that just has so little power, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> so much flavor that comes into that. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and it's very just elegantly spelled out. Yeah, it could have been a very confusing wording for an ability like that, but it's clear and it makes sense. Yeah, you can look into the polished surface of a Geminate blade to see everything reflected in its paired blade as if looking through a window. That's so much simpler than what I just tried to describe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then last is playability. Does, should a GM allow this at their table? Is a player going to want to use these items? Does it need to be changed before it can really get a lot of use out of it? And I think this is, again, a solid five stars. Nothing needs to be changed here in order for it to be used in a, a game perfectly as is. Yeah, they did a good job of balancing the mechanical strength the flavor the lore and then also because it's magic items the attunement and rarity mm-hmm. because uh, we've talked about a little bit in our magic item episode before there's there's basically two types of items there's consumables and permanent items but then even within that you have rarity and then you have attunement and attuned items are naturally more powerful at their rarity than or, sh- or should be or should be yeah. right and, and if they're not they're they're the bad items <laughs> they're the trap <laughs> options um but the the authors here clearly understood that 
right? And so I think they did a good job of, of giving the types of abilities that don't require attunement and the types of powers that should require attunement. Mm -hmm. And there aren't a lot of items here, but there is a range of items, both in the rarity, but then also in the types of abilities and the types of players that would be interested in using these items. Yeah, we haven't mentioned the Seed of the Pale Oak, which is I love it. one of my favorite items in mm -hmm. here. I mean, there's only five, and I love them all. But this one, <laughs> it's a legendary seed that you plant. And when you die, anywhere you go, you are then reincarnated in the roots of this tree that grows from it. That's the type of item that a lot of players would look at and go, okay, that's cool, but it's a legendary and it uses an entombment slot, and like, no thank you. But there is a certain type of player that this is perfect for. Yeah. yeah, this is totally an end game item, right? Yeah, this is your your druid is level twenty and mm -hmm. riding off into the sunset. I must find the seed of the pale oak so that I can rest easy and know <laughs> that nature will always be protected. Yeah, and then I must put it someplace <laughs> where it will be safe, <laughs> far, far away, probably far from nature. I need a grove. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, demiplane. <laughs> all right, so you total all of that up and you get an average score of four point eight stars. This is a nearly perfect product this is exactly what i want to see on the dms guild mm -hmm. this is exactly the type of stuff that i want to go to the dms guild to introduce to my home game right these are the type of items that i want to be able to give out to my players as story rewards as motivators as um, plot points it's basically perfect everyone should go pick this up and and pay a dollar for it it's well worth it yeah so if you've seen something on the Dungeon Masters Guild that you want us to review, or you have created something for the DMs Guild that you want us to review, send it over uh, on Twitter at TPTCast, or you can email it to TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. All right, shall we move on to the Morning Glory campaign? When last we left, the party had just, well, not defeated a Draco Lich, but successfully run away from a Draco Lich. Managed to kite a Draco Lich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> With the frozen heart of Katashka the gatekeeper, a previously killed and now vestigial fiendish overlord. And so Brand casts teleport once all of the party is able to link hands. He doesn't leave anyone behind, which character growth. It's <laughs> <laughs> not growth. It's just showing who he is. Uh-huh. <laughs> and where does Brand teleport to? Uh, to Flamekeep. <laughs> <laughs> Capital of Thrain, the the seat of power of the Silver, the Silver Flame, Flame, the capital of his home, his world, Vatican his home City, nation. yeah, <laughs> uh, to a to a nicely but quietly appointed apartment. His apartment, his own right, apartment, like his Inquisitor Brand's apartment. Well, his safe house, <laughs> one of his apartments. <laughs> you appear there, and everything seems fine. That's great, except for the horrible abomination. One of you is holding in their hands that is radiating waves of necrotic energy. Well, I believe we're actually holding it in a telekinesis. Yes. Okay. We're not touching it. We've learned that's bad. Uh, yes. But it, it begins to immediately start rotting all of the fine, I mean, not high quality, but relatively quality upholstery and tapestry. And Everything that was organic material. Wooden, wooden floors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a problem. <laughs> your Your plant, your favorite spider plant dead well you don't have to water spider plants so they're, they're great for safe houses and those types of applications when you know you're not going to be there for a couple years at a time in, uh, in, fa yeah. in fact every organic thing within 120 feet of your location began to wither almost immediately which tipped you guys off that 
oh yeah, maybe someone is going to notice this. We should probably get out of here. Yep. So Bran used his second teleport of the day. (laughs) (laughs) With an eighth level spell slot. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And then we decided it was probably safer to take this to Irian, the plane of positive energy, which would hopefully neutralize some of this awful necrotic uh, withering that was happening. Right. Your sages did some quick calculations in their head and said, um, if these vestiges are somehow leftover remnants of a fundamental force of nature, then maybe a plane with the opposite characteristics might at least impede their abilities a bit. And so if Katashka is the embodiment of undeath, perhaps Irian, the plane of light angels and positive energy, is the place to go. Also, you guys have been there before, and it seemed pretty cool. It was super chill. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I didn't go to Erion in the first place. Like that place, I'm going to get an apartment there. Oh yeah, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good place to plant your seed. Right, that's a really good place to the, plant the here. oak one. Come on, people. <laughs> <laughs> so the party gets to Erion, and the plane dampens the negative energy that Katashka's heart is giving off. So you're able to actually like think for a little bit. And so we figure out how to kill it. Right. The party knows that it needs to gather uh, these these vestiges in order to create some sort of apparatus that can kill an immortal being. But they realize they, they don't need to keep this thing in whatever semblance of life it still has. If they can, you know, kill it enough so that it's inert, it's much safer to carry around and still useful to them, at least according to their understanding of the prophecy. Yeah, and also we can't really trust leaving this behind anywhere. Mm-hmm. As it is, it's not like we can put it safely in Irian somewhere. That could be out of reach of whoever is working against us. Right. So they all basically gang up on this inanimate object. And after beating on it long enough, it basically stops doing anything. And the sages determine, actually, Erian was one of the few places where this actually probably could have been done. And of course, then Cube says, well, that's good to know. Maybe we should never go to Kithri, the plane of chaos, which is in... <laughs> Total opposition to to cube, what, yeah. <laughs> to cube as a being of pure order. <laughs> Note to sell. Yeah. All right. So having killed Katashka's cart, we then decide to uh, make a trip back to Iolakar, which is sort of our new base of operations. Mm-hmm. The, this is the um, well, the independent free city in the continent of Arganesson. Uh, which hosts the magical bazaar that we are now quite frequent uh, <laughs> patrons of. <laughs> right. Well, remember, at this point in the game, the party is basically going through a lengthy multi-tiered fetch quest. Oh, yeah. Because they, they have a prophecy. They know they need to gather several things in order to create this apparatus. So they now have the Mirthless Jester's Frozen Heart. They have the Naive Six-Faced Golden Child. They still need what they think is uh, an angel or a coaddle bound in a Sybaris shard. They're pretty sure they know where to get that. Yeah. We know some angels. That's right. They put us on trial. <laughs> you still need the rest of Raltul Kesh, who you also believe is now the Lord of Blades. Right. So you got to go find skull. that guy. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but the party also needs to find the true name of whatever being they're trying to kill. And that one, they don't really have any leads on. So again, Iola Carr is a great place for research. And they find someone in the, buzzo- in the bazaar who says, well, I have heard of a book full of the vilest of darkness that is said to contain the true names of multiple fiends. Perhaps there's something in there that you could find. And when the party says, well, what does this book look like? <laughs> it's bound in human flesh. Huh. 
We've seen that before. Huh. You've held that before. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't great. You couldn't open it. No. We yeah. were thus proving brand not evil. <laughs> because the legend also <laughs> says the book can only be opened by a, an evil creature. Right. So we're talking about the Book of Vile Darkness, which was carried by Jorland Kenneth? Zorland Kenneth. Zorland Kenneth, yes. Stolen from the Drow Queen, Ariadne, and then framed you for it. So she told you to go get the book back. And then once you brought the book back, she threw you guys into Belashir's cave to fight and die. Uh, if you'll recall, Ishan, she also stole 2,000 gold from us. <laughs> she did. So it sounds like we're going to get a chance to get that back. <laughs> At this point in the campaign, the party can decide what order they're going to do things in. And so Bran had a vendetta against the Drow Queen. Lou had a vendetta against Belashira. And so everyone said, well, yeah, let's go get the book. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's go indulge there. <laughs> <laughs> also, you know you had to go there anyway to get a large chunk of Sybaris Shard. Right. Because the Drow Village was actually built around a, a large meteorite chunk of a Sibiris shard of a huge one. Yeah, so we were going to knock out a few birds with one stone. That's right. But when the party teleports to the Drow Village, or to the outskirts of the Drow Village, the large Sibiris shard is nowhere to be seen, and instead there is a 150-foot-tall tower of what appears to be chitin. Gross, crustacean-y, abalethy chitin. And we'll find out what's inside that tower of chitin next week. So this week, we're talking about kaiju battles. Shane, what's a kaiju? It's a Japanese movie monster. That's correct. That's all I know about that word. <laughs> you watched Pacific Rim, basically. I watched Pacific yeah. Rim. I, I mean, I used to watch Godzilla, and then I saw the terrible like, 1998 version of Godzilla uh, with a great soundtrack. But uh, yeah, I mean, so it's like Godzilla, Ultraman, King Kong, yeah. Mothra. Mm-hmm. That's as far as I got into the Godzilla series. Right. The kaiju are the monsters, good or bad. And then, of course, part of the genre includes often very large heroes or protagonists who then sort of fight them in hand-to-hand. You know, Voltron, the Power Rangers. These are really iconic battles, especially in RPGs and often video games, because the big boss monster that you end up fighting is often a really big monster. Like yeah. the Tarrasque. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So think of um, Shadows of the Colossus mm-hmm. is probably the most distilled down because it's just boss fight (laughs) like we don't do any of that side scrolling we just go straight to boss fight right and it's just a staged battle against that boss Mm -hmm. um and then also even more modern games like uh, action games like god of war right you're you're constantly fighting up to gods (laughs) to you know basically climb on their back and slit their throats but it's always this sort of process of fighting your way up to them. Mm-hmm. And even traditional dungeon crawls, right? You make your way through the goblins and the orcs and you work your way up to the massive dragon, Smaug. Right. Who is, I mean, he's large enough, he's the size of a kaiju. He's bigger than the Tarrasque, actually. Yeah. Who's only 50 feet tall. Only. Yeah. Yeah, a uh, mere 50 feet tall. Whatever. And <laughs> <laughs> devours entire cities in one bite. <laughs> I don't know how it fits it in its mouth. It's I don't a, understand. It's a scale problem. Just it's let it go. <laughs> So at some point in your campaign, you're probably going to want to throw one of these in just because your players are going to recognize it. And there are so many opportunities for things that we talked about in the alternative combat objectives episode. And there are just a lot of really cool ways to try to pull these off. Yeah, I mean, you can fight the Tarrasque, and that's all well and good. That's a nice challenge on its own. Or you can grapple the Tarrasque. You could try. But fighting the Tarrasque is more interesting if you're protecting 
an important town mm-hmm. <laughs> from being devoured by the Tarrasque, right? So it, it's that kind of uh, stakes escalation that's where you really get your value from these types of things. Right. There's always the danger that you end up with just one big mini on the table and your players sort of around it so that they can flank and then it's just an empty open field. Yeah, exactly. Where's the tactics in this if it's just one mini, right? Let's hit it until it dies an hour later. Right, yeah. Yeah. We're now running a dice simulation. Yeah. (laughs) So there are multiple different challenges with these kinds of battles. We talked a little bit about scale, If you're using a battle map, how do you emulate this battle where something could be 200 feet tall and then you have humanoid-sized players? How do they even interact with it? Uh, You cut off its toes. Yeah, one one by one. one. That's one thing that D&D doesn't model well. You know, some other games do a little better with hit locations or whatever, but Mm -hmm. because D&D combat is abstracted as AC and hit points, it can be tough to, to kind of figure out in your mind, right, what am I actually doing when I walk up to this gigantic creature and swing my sword at it? You know, am I just trying to hit it in the Achilles tendon until it eventually falls and I can stab it in the face? You know, what what, what am I actually doing here other than swinging at a generic bag of hit points? Mm-hmm. Also, these battles tend to take a really long time because the massive monsters have seven hundred hit points. A gigantic bag of hit points. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wah wah! I hit it again. Nothing changes outwardly because D and D doesn't really model that. Right. Right. Or even other systems. You know, often it's just. It's the big bad monster, and so it's just tougher. Maybe it's just even harder to hit. It's got some legendary actions, you know, those types of things. Yeah, or it has, you know, really great defenses. Often those just end up dragging the combat out. Right. So it's really, it can be very tough to make sure you're keeping the battle interesting. But the first thing that I always think about when you pit your players against something huge and massive and potentially world-ending is balance. How do you keep it challenging but not impossible to win? Like, why doesn't a 300-foot-tall creature just step on the PCs and kill them immediately? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think that's known as the poor man's disintegrate. (laughs) (laughs) And so there needs to be a reason why this isn't happening. And for me, I like to think of the monster as an NPC. It needs to have motivation, even if that is just mindless hunger or wanton destruction there is a reason that this monster isn't here all the time or hasn't destroyed the entire world or the entire city what is the goal of the monster is it just chasing the little people that it sees around because it wants to eat all of them is it angry at the power plant because it's been polluting the ocean yeah i mean is it being controlled by some greater force yeah is it just a vessel is it an atat in the battle of hoth (laughs) right the machine itself isn't evil or good. It has no motivation, but mm. the Imperials inside it do. Or whoever's giving it directions from space. Right. <laughs> Lord Vader. <laughs> Does it just really like uh, pretty blonde ladies? You know, right. And all it wants to do is hang out alone away from the helicopters. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You're just making it angry. <laughs> <laughs> and those can be really interesting things for PCs to find out as they interact with it. You know, maybe it just really does just want to get away. And the only reason that it's smashing schools is because you made it angry. Yeah. How intelligent is the creature? Is it essentially a mindless beast? Can it communicate in words, but it's not very bright? Or is it like your mad scientist who's grown to a hundred stories tall from their random contraption, who is, is brilliant and, you know, now also very powerful? Yeah. And keep in mind, just because you're intelligent at a certain scale... You no longer notice small things. Mm. It's like fleas on the back of a dog. 
it doesn't matter how smart the Tarasque is, it's probably not going to notice a couple adventurers climbing up its its legs. You know, it's just not going to feel it, right? Yeah, it's important to define the limitations of of this monster. It can't be all powerful, or else it just wins. Right. So often they'll have physical weaknesses or physical limitations, like poor perception or can't see behind it. Yeah, and, and physical weaknesses is the classic of video games, right? It's mm-hmm. it's that hit location that you have to, you know, it's that sequence of things. You have to shoot it in its back leg so it rears up so you can stab it in the belly, mm-hmm. right? It's those kind of limitations. Hit the Oliphant in the eye. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there also could just be magical or prophetic constraints. You know, the Tarrasque is only able to operate while the Blood Moon is high. Right. And so if you can just stave off the devastation until like that passes you're okay right and that also might be why it doesn't unleash its full power all at once you know maybe maybe it's gaining power as the moon rises or maybe you're mad scientist (laughs) this is the first time he's been 100 stories tall yeah it's really difficult to figure out how to coordinate your limbs yeah it's like the jaegers in pacific rim the first time they get in one in fight they're really struggling to actually use it Mm -hmm. so if you're battling against the first Jaeger as the PCs, then you've got an advantage because you know yourself and they don't quite know what they're capable of. Right. And for your PCs, maybe that advantage is just they don't automatically lose. Right, exactly. (laughs) Maybe that means you can have a fight. Right. (laughs) So there's a couple different formats that these battles could take. And I think the most common, the most applicable is player versus giant. You've got normal humanoid-sized PCs fighting something massive. Yeah, so let's talk about what are what are sort of the archetypes here. You've got player versus giant. Mm-hmm. You've got a player becomes a giant. Right, so giant versus, versus giant. giant. Right. And then and then we have like player versus environment. Right, right. Which, the giant as battlefield. The giant is so large that you can't actually directly affect it. It just is. All right, so in the first scenario, player versus giant. We were talking about this before, and you like to break the monster down into sub enemies though not literally well no but rather than um the tarasque is a bad example because the tarasque is actually a a large statted monster and it's sort of iconic right and also kind of boring yeah but but players want to fight the tarasque so there's only so much you can do with the tarasque but let's use that as the model if you if you approach it as sort of a challenge to actually get to earn the killing blow you can think of it like shadows of the colossus where you have to accomplish certain tasks in order in order to climb it right so first it must get low enough to the ground that you can get on its back and because you gave you gave your tarasque wings right uh, it has wings obviously it can fly because otherwise <laughs> right I, and i mean this is where D you, you can run into some problems because you could teleport to it or whatever right mm-hmm. but, but the point is you've got to weaken it to the point that you can do these types of things so it might be first sort of hamstringing it so it stops moving then you're able to climb it and then you must then you have to kind of work your way across its back which is its own challenge and then you have to get to its neck and then you have to actually pierce its windpipe or whatever mm-hmm. or and its eye or i don't know there doesn't necessarily need to be a specific set order that the players have to do these in they can come up with ideas and maybe they work and maybe they don't work yeah and, and as you're doing this it's really you're asking the players to narrate how would you approach fighting something gigantic Mm -hmm. if your answer can't be i run up and swing at it because we've drilled down one layer below that level of abstraction so okay well first i would get the giant to kneel (laughs) right (laughs) i would get him to my level (laughs) all right well i'm going for his knees then right and this is a nice opportunity for the characters with lots of 
combat abilities, they they can use those to good effect. You know, if you can do a bunch of damage to its knee or even to its toe, maybe it kneels because it's in pain. Right. But other characters who are not as good in combat, they can now use their skill checks or even other potentially ribbon abilities. Yeah, I mean, because they could be doing the types of things that identify what the next move is, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, in, in the same way that as you're playing boss fights, right, you know you have to shoot it here so that you can strike it there. Well, you have to somehow communicate that to the players as well. Yeah, one thing I like about this is in 5th edition, but also a lot of other games, you can only affect a creature of a certain size with some abilities. Like sometimes a creature is just too large for you to knock over with your sword. But you can almost always still trick that creature by like taunting it. Mm -hmm. Because all you need is an intelligence of three. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So what about mechanically representing the creature then? So I would think of it as fighting a series of monsters, right? So so kind of stat out different pieces of the battle mm. as a separate monster. And you, you move through a piece of the battle uh, once you've killed effectively that group of hit points, right? So if you think of it as um, maybe you're fighting like a, a giant dinosaur that has tentacles. We've done that. <laughs> <laughs> to fight it, you might say that first you have to get on its back and then you have to climb its head and then stab it in the brain right i don't know maybe that works first of all you have to avoid its teeth and claws and tail as you're attempting to get on its back but then once you're on its back it has tentacles that are able to reach you so you have to avoid those and so maybe rather than risk being swallowed uh now you're at risk of being grabbed and thrown right and then as you get to its head now you've got a balance right because it's less area and then you've got to all through this you have to weaken it to the point where um, you can safely advance to the next kind of area. And each part of the monster can basically be its own stat block. And that's why I thought of that specifically, right? Mm-hmm. Is is one is a very bludgeoning heavy, right? Your, right? your tentacles. Like one is base Allosaurus or whatever, maybe slightly upscale Allosaurus. <laughs> uh, but then when you're on its back, it, you're fighting off tentacles. And when you're on its head, you're kind of in a more of a skill type situation. Yeah, and you can just reflavor any monsters. You know, maybe the a stamping hoof is a garistro right reflavored to you know be just sort of one big hoof yeah. instead of a monster with big hooves exactly <laughs> uh, when the party fought the steel kraken in the thunder sea in the morning glory campaign there was uh you know 10 tentacles and a head and the head was just sort of just right under the water and each of each tentacle and the head itself had their own hp and then operated independently and even actually no i didn't i didn't have them have their own initiative the head had one initiative and the t- all the tentacles went at yeah. the same time just because that was easier and also more terrifying yes <laughs> ten oh, attacks. Wait, it's that <laughs> turn 10 attacks yeah. <laughs> but you know players would then decide which tentacle are they attacking and you could kill one tentacle it didn't affect the other tentacles uh, but you know then that one it would take that tentacle off the board yeah like like hydra heads for example yeah right exactly. you can actually stat individual hydra heads instead of having it and i haven't even looked at what a hydra does in the in the monster manual it grows more heads well i know that <laughs> but i know it's it's statted as multiple attacks rather than multiple creatures right. in one base mm-hmm. right it's the same thing that they do with tiamat yeah right five heads but same stat block yep and as your players are trying to figure out what is the order in which these objectives need to be accomplished in order to take down this massive beast Remember that it doesn't necessarily need to be encounter and encounter and encounter back to back. You know, you can always mix in 
what would essentially be a trap, but is basically an ability of the monster, a massive breath weapon, or when enough damage is dealt to its head, its face melts and it becomes a flaming skull and there's a torrent of blood (laughs) that's very slippery. (laughs) And now he's surrounded in difficult terrain to people your size. (laughs) No, I I mean, you could also have, especially on, on... I'm thinking like aberrations or something very large like that, like like an abolus secretes its ooze, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that could make moving on the creature itself difficult or require dexterity saves or that sort of thing, right? If you don't want to go all out and then make multiple stat blocks for each part of the monster, because, you know, sometimes you're juggling different sheets of paper, or that can get complicated. You can just use one single stat block, but then modify it at specific intervals either when specific conditions are met or you can just do it on a timer you know after two rounds after four rounds so like for example you know after the players have dealt 50 damage to the creature in whatever way that they do that the giant robot's prismatic shield shatters and then its ac drops by two and that's pretty easy paperwork for for you to have you know you just have a few conditions on the side that's totally dependent on system i think in some systems, it's easier to do that. In other systems, it's easier to use separate monsters. Um, mm, yeah, depending right. on like how the stat block is, is right. used. And, and also how bursty the damage is from yeah. your players. <laughs> right. I mean, I think specifically in 5e, if you're dealing with a paladin, there's a good shot the paladin can one-shot uh, with good rolls and smites. But that's kind of cool because the paladin runs up. You can all see this shimmering prismatic shield. One hit, boom, the whole thing shatters. Right, right. And that gives that gives your players the sense that something is happening there's progress right right you know i think with any change that you were doing here or, or anything that ends up being different with the stat block you need to telegraph that to your players that hey something different happened here right because you know maybe one of the things is that it gets an additional an, it gets an additional legendary action well that wouldn't be readily apparent to your players but they should be able to notice that it does seem to be more reactive in it's, some manner it's more frenzied it's, it's, <laughs> it's lashing out a lot more you know it's it's upset All right yeah the other thing is is bringing these things back if the paladin smashes the shield and this doesn't have to be a robot this could be you know a magical property or something too right mm-hmm. or, magician with ablative armor whatever yeah exactly you know maybe it takes a round and then that shield comes back up right mm-hmm. so you're, you're making pro- you're constantly making progress towards an overall objective but you have to keep working through this layer of defenses in the process. And that gives the players an ability to be a lot more tactical. You know, okay, everyone delay until the paladin goes, breaks the shield, and all the rest of us hit. Right. And so now it's not about tactical positioning. It's about tactically lining up your abilities. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, that's one way to make it more tactical. I think the other thing you want to keep in mind for games like D&D that are about attrition, right? Mm. Like, Because D&D is fundamentally more dangerous at the end of the day than it is at the beginning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, at at any level, you have more options available at the beginning. So you want to think about how many encounters would I throw at the players over the course of of my adventuring day that's going to make it difficult? That's the level of difficulty I want in this one fight. So I need to find ways to keep that level of encounter in front of them, right? And sometimes that means recycling that encounter because, oh, his prismatic shield came back up, Mm -hmm. right? Or because his uh, artifact re-triggered whatever that effect was. Yeah, one of the things I like about modifying the stat block is that you can do it on the fly based on how well or how how poorly your players are doing. So one thing I really like is the glass cannon boss. So it takes a bunch of damage and then it becomes much more dangerous. Right. You know, Uh, either, you know, you bloodied it or whatever and now it goes into a blood frenzy. Yeah. 
and it gets an extra attack per round. Right. So, hey, guess what? You made progress. Right. You made it really, really angry. <laughs> yeah, but now we've got to kite it for a while until right. it comes back comes down, down. Exactly. So that we can deal more damage, because otherwise it's just going to keep getting more attacks. Right. right. And now the rogue gets to win for a little while because they've got cunning Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to stay over here. Right. <laughs> I do think one of the biggest challenges of this is going to be communicating these meta rules of combat to your players. Mm -hmm. Because you always want to be showing and not telling. But one of the challenges of a lot of games is that combat can can be over for one side or the other very quickly. So if your average combat is only three or four rounds, your players might never have a chance to learn what mechanics they were actually fighting against for how this creature operates. Mm -hmm. right? And I don't mean game mechanics. I mean worldly mechanics it has a shield that it uses to defend itself and then as it gets hurt it gets more angry and lashes out more viciously and these types of things right if you don't repeat that pattern enough they're not going to learn it or observe it and it's just going to feel like a normal fight yeah that's one of the reasons that when your players are going up against these big or iconic creatures it's nice to it's nice if they have been able to research it yeah and so they at least have the lore about what kind of abilities it has. Or if it's meant to be a surprise, it's sometimes good to have sort of the, the wharf effect, like to have them watch the creature take someone else out or, <laughs> yeah. or watch, you know, the entire squadron of, you know, fighter pilots try to just try to hurt it and nothing happens. It gets swiped away. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so they go, oh, okay, that's not going to work. Yeah, it's, it's that moment in Independence Day when they all think they're doing a great job and shooting down the uh, the giant, the city killer base thing, mm -hmm. and then it has a shield. <laughs> and obviously you need to resort to hacking. Right, right. Oh, wait, and then it has fighters. <laughs> Strangely capable in atmosphere. <laughs> so the modification of the stat block is actually something that Horde of the Dragon Queen uses at the end. There are five quests, up to five quests that you can accomplish. Whoa, 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 spoilers. Spoilers. No, it's, it's okay. Maybe. There are up to it's five three quests. Years old. <laughs> up to five quests that you can accomplish sometime throughout the campaign. And when you get to the end, depending on how many of those the party has accomplished, each of those weakens Tiamat's final form in a particular way. Like, I don't actually remember what they are, but yeah, <laughs> you prevent one blood ritual and her AC is actually 20 instead of 25. Right. You know, you find a the proper item and she only gets four legendary reactions instead of five legendary reactions. Right. And you can get all of those and then she's actually relatively manageable. Yeah. It's important at the very beginning when you are presenting this encounter to the players in the first place you know they see it from a distance because it's huge they should probably see it from a distance oh yeah they hear it comes they, they should see it coming before it knows they're there probably yeah <laughs> that is when you want to start having them think of ideas what are you going to do and you you don't necessarily need to have a specific way for them to do it i mean you should have some ideas so that, you know, if they're like, I don't have any ideas, I roll an intelligence check, you could give them right, something. Yeah. Here, here's some ideas. <laughs> right. Smash its shield. <laughs> it's also possible that the first thing your player does is say, oh, it's on its way. I shall grow to 50 feet and fight it hand to hand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is getting into the giant versus giant format, right? Mm -hmm. It's not common in later iterations of D&D, &D, but it was actually pretty easy in 3.5. And it's super common in things like mutants and masterminds where you can have 
a player that turns into a giant as like their main ability right. at very low levels. <laughs> I am a kaiju. That's, yeah, that's my that's thing. What I do. I'm kaiju man. <laughs> I'm the atom. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if your PCs are giant and their enemy is giant, well, you've just really changed the battlefield and terrain scale, right? So now you're not worried about crossing a stream or you know a, a 10-foot chasm or a tree that's in the way providing cover. You're worried about a skyscraper or mm-hmm. a hive or a, uh, a mountain now becomes difficult terrain, right? So you just have to draw the battlefield at a different level of scale, and you're basically playing a similar game uh, with the exception that collateral damage <laughs> of just a simple step, right, mm-hmm. could be significant. One of my favorite things here is when dealing with kaiju obviously your players are almost always going to be thinking about you know the innocent civilians who are in the way unless they've somehow been able to evacuate the entire city or they're the avengers (laughs) who cares whatever (laughs) (laughs) but in this instance it's a really nice opportunity for you to convey to your players the repercussions of their own actions because they are now giant are they aware of everywhere they're stepping right what happens if they punch the giant monster and the rippling thunder wave that comes from the force of that blow throws cars and knocks over buildings. Yeah, and depending on the intelligence of their opponent, right, that creature could just be shoving them, could just be knocking them down, Mm -hmm. couldn't even really be trying to harm them as much as just trying to inflict as much damage on what's valued by them, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to save New York and you get thrown across the river into into midtown Manhattan and take out a bunch of skyscrapers, that's catastrophic loss for you, even if you're relatively unharmed. As long as you care about New York. If you care about New York, yeah. <laughs> if you're New York man. <laughs> I mean, if a battle is happening in New York, it should only be happening there because your players care about it. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, it's, if the battleground is not somewhere they care about, you pick the wrong place. Which is why you can never fight in L.A. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody likes L.A. <laughs> Oh, this is a great opportunity to rebuild. Right. Maybe with a subway system. <laughs> we can build it better, faster, smaller. <laughs> oh, it's blotting out the sun. Perfect. <laughs> we'll rebuild LA with a giant parasol. <laughs> yeah, the other thing to think about is, you know, like in Mutants and Masterminds, right? You might have one giant PC, mm-hmm. but you might have other normal-sized PCs. Right, so you need to think... Can those other PCs affect the battle directly? If they can, that's cool. You can just play it out on a really big map with like two big minis. Yeah, or um, change your scale of your grid to sort of five feet, 30 foot or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's basically your full move (laughs) between squares kind of thing. Yeah, and you know, you can fit more than one of the other PCs inside the same square. Exactly. That's kind of neat. And you know, it works obviously very easily with theater of the mind. Right. But I, I think the cooler thing to do is to go split screen. You know, some of them are fighting the giant, assuming they have abilities that can affect the giant, right. you know, and then you have the, the giant PC sort of grappling it. And then others have alternative combat objectives that they need to, to handle. So I think of the uh, the Legend of Korra finale, which was such a great battle. I'm, I'm going to avoid spoilers, so I'll be vague, but it was such a great battle because you had some of Team Avatar throwing tidal waves and buildings at the giant and then other people who didn't really have combat abilities that could affect it, their job was to essentially hamstring it. Or in like a Shadowrun uh, cyberpunk kind of game, 
you could have a hacker team or like an infiltration team mm -hmm. trying to get into to you know undermine the corporate headquarters mm -hmm. while part of your team is also fighting its outward defenses to distract it kind of thing yeah one team runs ahead sabotages the bridge and then the big pcs lead it across the bridge and then the bridge blows up right or you know find the wizard who's controlling it yeah exactly <laughs> while while some pcs try to pre prevent the collateral damage grapple it as much as possible they're not going to win and that's fine they still get to use these really cool abilities and they can still make these you know knowledge and lore checks to figure out the best way to prevent it from hurting other people right but really the key lies with the tiny little pcs who are like running into the tower exactly yeah. <laughs> and once again your rogues cunning action quite useful right <laughs> and of course my favorite one is someone fights it on the outside and then someone else breaks inside to it right. inside of it yep yep so you have to kill the pilot kind of thing <laughs> or find its heart right <laughs> jump into its mouth <laughs> survive in its belly <laughs> It's great if your whole ship gets swallowed by a whale, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course, once someone's inside, you now have giant as battlefield. So this is things that are just too big to affect directly. Um, this is the whole plot of um, a small movie franchise you might have heard of. Um, Star Wars, I think. Mm. Wait, didn't they fight on the Death Star? The Death Star again? And that Starkiller base? Uh also Death Star. Also the Death right. Star, yeah. Right. Death Star Jr.? Always bigger third? than third? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> or even fantasy creatures like Atropus, the world-born dead, which is from Forgotten Realms, and Greyhawk and is just a moon-sized ball of like undead flesh. Yeah, there's actually an RPG called Belly of the Beast that is entirely set inside the belly of a world-devouring beast. <laughs> <laughs> so it, civilization has just moved into the insides of this creature, right? So the monster can always affect what you're doing, but you can't really fight it. It's just life now. Yeah, it's a nice end game for, we talked a few weeks ago uh, about the Magic the Gathering RPG setting that Wizards put out, uh, Zendikar. Zendikar, that has the Eldrazi, which are basically Galactus. It's also a great way to fight Galactus. Yeah. <laughs> on his face. Yeah, and this has been used actually a lot of times in RPG-related fiction, mm -hmm. right? It's the final encounter of one of my favorite modules of all time, Monty Cook's Dead Gods, the Planescape Adventure from 2nd Edition. That takes place on the astral corpse of Orcus, which is awesome. Yeah, of course those awesome things would happen in Planescape, right? Yeah. <laughs> Forgotten <laughs> Realms can't have nice things. <laughs> so the battle is you know, fought on the giant or in the giant, but remember, it can convert from giant as battlefield to player versus giant anytime that you want you know back and forth like the players are walking on the giant to get to its face but then if it wakes up suddenly they're fighting it yeah so you want to build this as a series of encounters um you know the types of things you would encounter in this type of uh, monsterly environment right that that are moving towards some means of either leaving or ending the threat or killing the creature whatever it is right so if you're traveling through the guts of a giant whale uh, you have to somehow figure out how to get to its heart to kill it probably involves cutting your way out of its guts <laughs> or just following the digestive tract uh, to nearly the stomach right <laughs> <laughs> what i've seen before in some rpgs is there are 
separate set pieces depending on which direction you go within the body. So, you know, maybe there's a battle inside the lungs or, you know, all the way to the brain. Are you going to go to the brain or are you going to go to the heart? Yeah. Which of those first? You don't know it yet, but you're actually kind of dealing with one of these situations in a Rogue Trader campaign because you're clearing a ship that was dragged out of the warp, right? Mm -hmm. So you're dealing with the different encounters uh, on the ship that are left over from the demonic incursion and that sort of thing that that are natural within the warp. Yeah, because remember, the giant doesn't necessarily need to be living, right? We talked about the Death Star. The trench run is just one small part of it set against this massive backdrop. Right. But that is actually really more of a, a small-scale encounter, while other things are happening elsewhere on the Death Star. Yeah, like Death Star 2, you had the whole capital ship mm-hmm. battle raging on as a distraction for a small team to get into the core. And then right? at the same time, you had people on the moon of Endor trying yeah. to drop the shield. Drop the shield, yeah. and then also on the bridge of the ship trying to kill the Emperor. <laughs> <laughs> and at least distracting him. <laughs> Spoilers. Right. <laughs> So one thing I really like about this is that the you know the combatant traps reflect whatever area of the body or control room or whatever that the characters are in, but that damage inflicted by allies on the outside then has consequences on the inside. Oh yeah, I love that. You do enough damage to the outside, the lights go off inside. Right. <laughs> and the PCs inside can say, uh, okay, this is bad for us, the lights are off, That's but good job keep doing that it's working right it's sort of setting your time limit right Mm -hmm. as you're you're getting indicators that things are accelerating on the outside you know you have to do your job faster or else you're not going to get a chance to escape right if someone outside crits (laughs) the people inside are definitely making saving they're gonna feel it yeah (laughs) so you did a variant of this in our fight against Raul Tulkesh he was an environmental challenge Mm -hmm. because we just couldn't affect him on a deific scale right we just weren't powerful enough to affect him so he was just a raging towers of fire right that we had to work around that could attack us directly but it was just part of the environment right we weren't yeah. using we weren't on him but he was a part of the environment and just unavoidable right i needed some reason that this god didn't just wipe all of you from existence right and so for me it was uh, that he was still regaining power after being released, you yeah. know. So actually, well, and, and he was currently being fought by Cube or by <laughs> Primus. <laughs> so as the rounds were going by, he, his stat block was actually getting stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the the main battle for you guys was fighting uh, his minions, the Pit Fiend, the Baylor, the two Pit Fiends, the two Baylors, and Some the possessed angels. Uh, the, right? Yeah, the planets are. Yeah, right. But yeah, he was a huge obstruction in that he, he there was just this hole in the middle of the battlefield that was you know fire right and then of course he was still making swipes at you guys and then commanding the different uh, inferno storms that were roaming around the battlefield right so he was still a threat and one that you had to monitor and one that you needed to make knowledge checks about to see how best to deal with him which turned out to be avoidance <laughs> <laughs> mostly avoidance <laughs> And, and fire resistance that didn't hurt either <laughs> and of course if you get your players inside the giant then there should always be an escape scene if they win my favorite is when one person has actually been knocked unconscious or is dead and you know, do you bring the body do, you drag them along drag that person out yeah <laughs> huh you're doing that rogue trader too <laughs> hmm. 
it gives you a nice opportunity to then segue into uh, a chase or escape scene. Right, right. So we could mention there is an inversion of this trope. I love this one. This is where you shrink yourself Mm -hmm. uh, to a smaller scale to go inside a normal type creature. Or even just like the incredible shrinking man, your kaiju is a kitten. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Or Ant-Man, I guess, though. I I seriously didn't know Ant-Man was a real thing. (laughs) I thought that was an elaborate like April Fool's Day joke. Paul Rudd made it up. Yeah. 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 It totally sounds like it was written by James Franco and Seth Rogen, right? Yeah. The man ant. Yeah. (laughs) It's the sequel to Pineapple Express. (laughs) All right. Do you hear that, Ishan? That's me communicating telepathically with my ant flock. All right. Well, if you're bringing your ant flock, then I guess it's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge. Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sends Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And last but not least, you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. So fittingly, this week, we are actually building a giant killer. We told you we were going to build a hoplite, but we lied. Yeah, we found something more thematic. (laughs) And we're nothing if not thematic on this show. (laughs) So in 5th edition, a giant killer is really just kind of a solo killer, a boss killer. You've got a massive pool of hit points, you know, if you're playing against things that are statted out in the monster manual and, you know, run by someone who didn't listen to this episode. Right. (laughs) So the plan is to deal as much damage as quickly as possible. You want something bursty. You want a paladin. He's pretty bursty. Yeah. You're not wrong. (laughs) You also want abilities that potentially work well against something large or or just bigger than you. And you want to take it down as quickly as possible before it has a chance to trample you. So you want as many attacks as you can possibly get and ways to add extra damage onto those attacks. Yeah, this is a good time to clarify. This is not a grappler build. Oh, no. Uh, Because as one of our listeners was quick to point out, we have been misplaying the grappler fleet for a while, uh, mostly owing to its poor wording and our forgetting to read the official errata Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't actually allow you to grapple above your size so it wouldn't allow you to grapple the Tarasque and thus we find it worthless (laughs) so the build for the giant killer vengeance paladin 12 assassin rogue 5 hunter ranger 3 yeah we got some ranger in there okay this is a strength build I hope in this instance yes mountain dwarf is really good for this strength and con and also, you know, what's more iconic than a Dwarven giant killer? Yeah, yeah. So this is a little weird. We're not actually going for great weapon fighting because it, after the latest clarification, it doesn't affect all the extra dice from Smites and Hunter's Mark and all that. Yeah, so it's worthless. Yeah. Re- re-rolling, uh, re-rolling on your greatsword. Yeah, who yeah. cares? Who cares, yeah. yeah. So instead, we're actually going with two weapon fighting. And that's because it gives more chances to drop a smite because you can smite as many times as you hit. It gives you more opportunities to deal damage from Hunter's Mark, which applies to every single hit, Mm -hmm. as well as your improved Divine Smite feature. Which is just an extra damage die on every attack. Mm -hmm. So I think that I did the math on it in your base. You know, if you fully unload with you know, all the attacks that you could potentially get and smite as much as you can on everything, then it's like... 26d8 plus 76 plus 20 
So pretty decent. It's fun. Yeah. Anyway, Rogue is in here for cunning action because it's very important to be able to catch up to your giant if it decides to just walk away. Yeah. Or... <laughs> <laughs> and then what happens? Uh, he leaves. <laughs> Each step is 60 feet. Right. <laughs> It's also for expertise in athletics because you got to climb the thing. Yeah, and more importantly, uncanny dodge because then what happens? He steps on you. <laughs> <laughs> it is super handy to be able to use your reaction to have that damage. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> especially yeah. Uh, the uh, a mall the size of a mountain hits you. Mm, I'm gonna take half that. Right. <laughs> Rangers in here for the aptly named Giant Killer, which you get at level 3. That means that if a creature that is large or larger misses you with an attack, then you can use your reaction to get a free attack. Which will have some sneak attack, potentially, Mm -hmm. if you qualify. And it will also uh, allow for another smite in your round. Exactly. So it's probably best, it's less iconic, but probably best to use two rapiers because then they're finesse weapons and you can still get your sneak attack in, which is nice. And that couples well with potentially an assassinate. Can you use two rapiers? Uh, With two-weapon wielder. Oh, okay. Which, of course, means you need the two-weapon wielder feat, which just lets you use two non-light weapons in both hands. The other feat that works really well here is Sentinel, because it creates a catch-22 for your giant. So Sentinel lets you attack a creature adjacent to you if it attacks someone other than you so if it attacks an ally you get to hit it and smite if it attacks you and it misses then you can use the giant killer feature from ranger to attack it and potentially smite if it attacks you and hits then you can use uncanny dodge and deals only half damage yeah you've accidentally found a way to uh to tank (laughs) to tank a giant (laughs) so ideally you're looking at Two attacks with your main hand with extra attack. One attack with your off hand with your bonus action from two weapon fighting. And then a reaction attack as well. Right. Hopefully an attack, maybe just tanking a hit. Yeah. So Shane, where does your giant killer come from? Well, when you've got a vengeance paladin, mm-hmm. and you've got a little bit of ranger, and you've got a little bit of rogue, and you're a mountain dwarf, that doesn't feel to me like... He took up giant killing as a profession after suffering some great loss. It feels to me like he was trained as a giant hunter, Hmm. right? So he is a dwarven giant hunter. That's his calling. That's his profession. He gains the vengeance paladin as he's lost brothers in battle. He has suffered at the hands of giants because that is his job to suffer at the hands of giants. And he draws on that. Uh, His divine purpose is drawing on that pain, channeling it into crushing giants (laughs) making them fall i like it and then making a living creating belts of giant strength right yeah and i mean that's like a hobby for him yeah maybe he takes expertise in artisan's tools (laughs) he doesn't like to waste things right you know you use every part of the giant part of the giant yeah Yeah. (laughs) mostly for trophies but you know (laughs) who mean who would eat the giant (laughs) my very first character encased an ogre's toe in amber and wore it as an amulet oh that's He's a gnome, so it was massive. It's macabre. Yeah. I mean, I was like 14, so yeah. Right. Yeah. Super edgy Asian. <laughs> My giant killer is actually based on Jack, 
the giant killer. Oh, okay. With the beanstalk. Sure. Though, you know, he's a dwarf. Yeah. Whatever. So begins as a rogue, mainly focused on climbing the beanstalk or whatever, infiltrating giant strongholds. Oh, okay. Or Starkiller base, whatever. Taking what they can uh, and then escaping. Of course, eventually realizing sometimes you get caught and <laughs> you need to be able to kill things and take them down. And it is perhaps more lucrative to just kill the giant in the first place and take all its stuff. Yeah. You want to get the drop on him though, right? right. <laughs> it's, it's definitely easier <laughs> if you hit first. That's why expertise in athletics and stealth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This actually feels like a clanless dwarf to me. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like, like he, maybe he was cast out and, and now this is sort of his best way to um, maybe like earn his way back into his clan. Yeah, and I think the the trophies and the belts made out of uh, the giants that he kills are that's why other dwarves tolerate him enough. Like he comes around with his wares every once in a while. And you're like, okay, fine, fine. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's like buying it off the back of a truck, though. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, like you know, these were were irresponsibly sourced giant belts of giant strength. <laughs> you know, the giant population is really dwindling lately yeah it's like, it's like going to chinatown and buying a knockoff you know it's like it's not as good as the real thing and you know it's overall bad are these farmed giants right. <laughs> how dare you <laughs> he's really playing up that rogue element yeah, he's a rock cut come on all right if you want to support the show the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on itunes if you're willing to help us out we'll read your five-star review on the air You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. So we have a five-star review. This is Gets the Imagination Going, Five Stars, by Admiletz. My enjoyment of this podcast is very personal. The specifics of my interests and favorite parts of RPGs line up very well with the hosts. I love the discussions of Eberron, but even more, I love the focus on world building and character creation, my favorite parts of playing RPGs both grand and sweeping, and detailed character development. Thank you, Admiletz. All right, so what do we have planned for next week's episode? In our next installment of our series on player profiles, we're talking about specialists. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're actually building the hoplite. Well, that's it for episode 46 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. So the third the third section just is completely useless. The erratus is to ignore it. Is there it anywhere in the PHP that says you can't grapple things that are mm-hmm. So there's large. so you there's can, just no grappling larger than grapple up to large. Yeah. And that's it, period mm-hmm. in the entire game. Mm-hmm. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I hate it for you. <laughs> uh Mike Merle says, get fucked. Yeah, he says that a lot. Uh, the target of your grapple must be no more than one size larger than you. That's just the grappling rule. It's the worst. And errata for grappler is... Ignore that. Ignore the third bullet. Refers to a non-existent enemy. Wow, there's just no grappling bigger than... One size above you. Huge. Yeah. Because you can't get bigger than large. Yeah. Well, you want to get bigger than large? True polymorph. Yeah.
the worst. Could you true polymorph into a bigger sized version of yourself? <laughs> Depends on the wording. It's not until wish. You just wish yourself, wish yourself bigger. bigger. I wish I could grapple lar creatures up to any size. <laughs> I don't want to be bigger. <laughs> oh, man. All right. I should have stopped recording. That's fine. <laughs> All right.